Hello, and welcome to a brand new episode of Third Degree Burn. I am Tim Elliott, and with me as always, my partner in crime, Brian Hughes. Say hello, Brian. You're not supposed to... You're not... Oh, all right, come on, let's go. Stop, stop it, you... Let go of that gun. You're gonna break my... All right, get... what it worked we got them tucked away safely the tape is secured on their mouths and brian and tim have been supplanted by the interns we are back again uh you remember us from the dark phoenix or the phoenix saga uh your interns enjoyed it so much we came back we actually broke into tim and brian's studio bound and gagged them and we've taken over your third degree burn podcast for November. <laughs> We're twirling our mustaches right now as we speak. <laughs> we need we need them tied to a train track. Oh, that to work. Well, we'll do that afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, welcome everybody. As uh, as John said, we are back for another uh, sp- uh, spin of the wheel of the uh, Third Degree Burn podcast. Uh, my name is David Thompson. I'm joined by John Hyatt. Hello, John. Hi there, John Hyatt here. <laughs> and we are going to bring you uh, some listening pleasure in the month of November as as we celebrate and give thanks and, and spend time with our family and realize that a couple hours or three hours is enough. And then you can <laughs> send them out the door. But no, we, we are here to, to, to uh, have some fun. We're going to cover a couple of books and we'll talk about them here in a minute uh, with you all. You know, we'll have a good time. This hopefully for those uh, that are hosting their their families here over the Thanksgiving holiday, we we will bring some amazing, relaxing comic book talk to you as you de-stress over Thanksgiving. <laughs> yes, as you go into that turkey coma, need to just relax. Third degree burn. Why not check it out? That's right. That's right. All right. Well, I uh, figured you know to uh, to kick us off, John. You have been keeping tabs on all things Burn and Elswin, X Men Elswin or elsewhere. Why don't you bring folks up to speed on what's been happening in the Burn X Men world? It is X Men Elswin, and I have been following this. Uh, we are in the about the first quarter of the sixth issue of Elswin. And let me just tell you, Mr. Byrne is really firing on cylinders. He is really doing a great job at continuing the style of art that he had uh, back in the in the 80s of the Bronze Age. And this basically picks up after X-Men 137. And he's continuing it on and, and uh, continuing different types of storylines. It's really great. It's just so much fun right now. And this is no secret. I could tell you're overcome with emotion talking about it. <laughs> I mean, it is so exciting to have, first of all, it's exciting to have this version of the X-Men back. And it's exciting to have uh, John Byrne writing and telling the stories. And what he's doing is with these is he's he's putting up the pencils and making the pencils available. And if you haven't seen any of this, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on. And I just tell you, the artwork is fantastic. And the uh, it's all up on um, his own website, Burn Robotics. But the Burn Victims Facebook page is posting all of those there and cool. collecting them in one thread so that you don't have to find them all over the place. You just each day, what Burn is doing is each day he's posting a new page from a book. They're about 20 to 25 pages. Actually, X-Men issue one, Elsewhere issue one was 38 pages. So wow. it was like having an annual, and then the following ones are around 20, 22 pages. No ads. Hey, cool. <laughs> but let me tell you, uh, the artwork is really cool. It's 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 really good artwork. It's it's identifiably John Byrne, and it's you can see a little bit of his modern style of it, but he's really trying to take it back to when he was in that era of Marvel work. So it's a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying it. Oh, that's great. And, you know, uh, when he first 
started putting out the pages, I think um, Brian and Tim had talked about that there was some talk going on behind the scenes as there was a new editor in charge over at Marvel. Uh, there looked to be maybe a budding of a renewed, a renewed relationship between uh, Byrne and Marvel that didn't come to fruition, unfortunately. But the fact that he keeps putting out these pages for folks to read, I think is a real testament to one that, that he hasn't lost a step in his artwork, which, uh, you know, have followed creators for a long time, you know, depending on who you're talking about, you know, some of their later work is not as enjoyable artistically as, uh, as some of their earlier stuff. And you know, I think Byrne still publishing it on his, his website and showing that he still got it. You know, because <laughs> the pages, they are, they are beautiful. I mean, they are just pencils. So you, you do have to kind of use your imagination. And as you said, some folks have been brave enough to step up and, and ink them uh, or more. So you can, you know, folks, uh, look at folks taking a, a stab at having John Byrne critique their work, which I don't, I don't know if I'd be that brave. Maybe I would <laughs> if I had some artistic talent, but I don't. So yeah, it's really the, cool. The folks that have posted the ink pages has been really nice. It's been really great to see that, yeah. They've done a good job. They're very brave to step up to uh, to the plate and have someone critique their work. But I, I suppose if, if uh, this was something that you wanted to do, uh, who better, right, than John Byrne to give you some, some feedback on, yeah, yeah. on your work? Well, great. Yeah, if you haven't checked it out, what was the website again? Burn Robotics? Burn Robotics is where he's posting them. And if you're on Facebook and part of the Burn Victims uh, for fans of comic artist John Byrne uh, page or group, uh, it is a public group. So uh, uh, the admin is collecting the pages and posting them all in one thread so you can read them sequentially. You can read them every day or you can wait until they're all collected and then read them as a monthly like we used to do back in the day. And um, yeah, so that's where they are. So Fantastic. Dave, what are you what are you into these days? Well, for those that uh, listen to our uh, our first introduction on Third Degree Burn, I I am still reading comics. I'm still reading lots of stuff that's being put on the 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 shelf uh, every week. And two of them I wanted to talk about, just to kind of bring to to folks' attention. The first one is Spider Man Life Story by Chip Zdarsky and Mark Bagley. This is a story that basically poses the question of what if Spider-Man aged in real time from his first appearance uh, in Amazing Fantasy number 15, where he's a 15-year-old kid, to the late uh, 2010s? How would his life be? Uh, And it was a six-issue miniseries that just concluded here this month or so back ago and is available now in trade paperback. I'd highly recommend it. I know for some of the folks that I talk to and and try and preach the the enjoyment of comics, right? Always trying to push reading, right? More reading, even if it's reading comics. I know there's, there's some that, that snub comics, right? Cause they're not novels. This is a great book uh, because it, it's a good one to throw at people and say, well, you know, Batman, you know, he's been around forever, but he's always in his thirties, you know, and, and Superman and Spider-Man and and Avengers and X-Men, all these characters, right? They don't ever age. So this miniseries, right, is a perfect one if if you know someone that likes Spider-Man but also would kind of like to see, well, what would happen to Spider-Man if he did age in, in real time with us? And it follows his adventures then through each decade. So each of the six issues cover a decade in his life. So that one's really cool. That one is, again, Spider-Man Life Story by Chip Zdarsky and Mark Bagley. It's available out there in trade. Uh, I'm sure you can pick it up for under $20. And then the other one is Deceased, and not Deceased as in how you'd normally spell it, but Deceased as in D-C-E-A-S-E-D. And it's DC's take on their superheroes becoming zombies. So if you're familiar with Marvel Zombies, um, it's a very similar take from DC, although with a very unique twist, as only DC could do, as to how and why the heroes find themselves find themselves in uh, that predicament and the world around them kind of falling apart. That one just concluded here last week with issue number six. Uh, so it should be available in trade very soon. So if you liked Marvel Zombies or you like the idea of your superheroes, your Batman, Superman, your Justice League going up uh, zombie type folks, then you'll like Deceased 
by DC. So that one, check it out. Uh, should be coming out soon in trade, and you can you can binge it all in, in one sitting. Sounds an interesting concept to follow a comic book character in real time as they age. That sounds great. And it was a very enjoyable read and, and uh, definitely one to check out if you're either a Spider-Man fan or you're uh, looking for something that, that uh, kind of answers that question of, well, what would happen to a superhero if, if they aged like you and me? But that's, but that's not totally why we're here today. You know, we're to talk it's about, not. you know, burn putting out new penciled pages and brand new comics that are out there that are still being published that are still enjoyable. Uh, we're here to talk about a couple of comic books by the man himself, by John Byrne. Two of them for your uh, listening pleasure today. We're actually going to cover two books. Uh, the first one is uh, Uncanny X-Men number 115, and the second one is Fantastic Four number... Those are two totally different books released at two totally different times. Well, you're right. Uh, we picked them because this is November, and we wanted to pick books that would have been available to you at comic shops in the month of November. And both of them uh, were cover dated in November. And since John has the older book, uh, John gets to go first. Yeah, and I get X-Men, my favorite group of the time period, actually. I was all of 14 when this book came out. I was still buying it on spinner racks. I had not yet done subscriptions to Marvel. I don't, not sure why, that didn't start until X-Men 130 was my first um, subscription edition that showed up in my P.O. box in the tiny little town that I lived in. Until then, I had got all of my books from the little gas-and-go shop that I worked at. <laughs> and fortunately, um, I got the pick of the crop. And this was back in the day when a newsstand would write the date that the book either arrived or that the book needed to go back on the cover. So most of the time when you went to some right. newsstands, you you might have a, a an ink of a, like a, a you know 11.5 or whatever to say uh, this book needs to go back uh, because back then the yep. the books were distributed yep. in bulk and unsold copies they tore the cop they tore the cover off and sent the covers back and then threw the books away fully uh, returnable so, you didn't sell them yeah destroy them and we'll give you your uh 30 cents we'll, we'll give you credit or whatever right. so here we are with uncanny x-men 115 went on sale on august 15th but it's cover dated november of 1978 for a mere 35 cents well actually it was still only 35 cents I was going to say, they call it out, yeah. right? They still only. So that meant that DC had already gone up to 40 cents with their books. And Marvel was um, saying, hey, we're the better deal. You get uh, 17 pages of story for uh, 35 cents. Whereas at the distinguished competition, um, you pay five cents more. Uh, I don't think it was much longer that uh, Marvel went up to 40 cents a couple months later. No, but they worked it well. They, they sure did. So what X-Men 115 drops us into a the middle of, actually not in the middle, <laughs> into probably like the back two thirds of a very lengthy storyline. So this storyline began way back in X-Men 111. We'll recap and then we'll talk about uh, what leads in the story because it all kind of has it. The X-Men were kidnapped and they became part of a circus Beast showed up and saw all these circus people, and he's like, hey, they, they kind of look like my friends, the X-Men. And he does some investigation. Sure enough, uh, Ms. Miro had uh, conned the X-Men into being, or tricked the X-Men into being part of his circus. And then at the end of Beast, of course, decides, uh, figures out how to get them to release from their fantasies that they are and at the end we get this awesome reveal of magneto magneto takes them to his under the antarctic underneath a volcano lair and imprisons them and uh, subjects them to being all tied up and they get to be cared for by the robot nanny and then they escape from that in x-men 113 and uh, the volcano explodes and the X-Men get separated. Beast and Phoenix uh, make it to the surface. 
and the rest of the X-Men escape through another tunnel and emerge in the Savage Land. Of course, everyone thinks that the other group have died. So we've got those thread lines going on. Yeah. So, uh, of course, I do. X Men One Fourteen shows us that the X Men reveal to the the Savage Land with a a stunning uh, full page uh, image, and then there, of course, these are the new X Men, so they haven't been to the Savage Land before, and of course, Cyclops is the only one who has, I believe. I don't know that Banshee had it before that. But uh, Cyclops had been to the Savage Land, so he knows what's going on. The X-Men are now experiencing, for the first time, dinosaurs and pterodactyls and all of that. Then they befriend a, a friendly tribe. And, of course, they meet Kazar, the uh, person who is most in charge there. Issue 114 ends with Storm enjoying the, the nature, uh, of course, being the weather goddess of Africa. This is like home to her. And uh, suddenly someone comes up to her and um, touches her and says, I just need a little to relieve my pain. And we get a full reveal of the return of Sauron. Our final page of 114 is Sauron holding a unconscious storm in his full changed image there and leads us into uh, X-Men 115. So that's a recap. And so uh, from X-Men 115, <laughs> now we get uh, most of the, the story takes place in uh, the Savage Land where we get the battle between Sauron and uh, then we find out that after they're battling, they find a way to trigger Sauron's change back to his human form of Karolikos. And then Kazar shows up and uh, we get the backstory that of Carl showing up back here. And then the sorceress Zaladane trying to resurrect a sun god called Garok. And she succeeds in doing that. And in, in doing that, she is suppressing all of the Savage Land tribes. And Carl is trying to subvert that. He's He remained in the Savage Land so that he could not be near mutants because mutants trigger his transformation into Sauron. And uh, he is a good guy, really, but Sauron is not. So it's this Jekyll Hyde uh, story with Sauron. And Carl, as long as he doesn't have mutants around, he remains Carl. And he's a very smart scientist. And uh, he really wants to do good. So. He convinces the X-Men that, hey, you know, Zaladine is, Zaladine is not a good person and we need to battle her. But Cyclops is like, yeah, no way, dude. We need to get back to the surface because Magneto might be free. We got to protect Professor X. And Wolverine's like, yeah, you're kind of being a jerk, Cyclops. We've got to help these guys now. But Cyclops is like, yeah, we're going back. And Kazer's like, okay, man, um, if that's how you are, if that's what you need to do, go ahead. But at the end of the story, they find out that um, the rise of Garok, the sun god, has is bringing about possible um, a winter or destruction to the Savage Land. So that's where it ends is with the X-Men not being able to leave and they have to face this crisis. So that's where we are. This is a you know really, and I, and, and I should have prefaced this in our beginning comments, but part of the way... Uh, that John and I rate uh, older issues, right? Is to, to determine, you know, is it still enjoyable, right? So some of these books, as in uh, John's, right, is 41 mm -hmm. years old. You know, is it still enjoyable today? And then would we recommend it to someone? And obviously you're going to have qualifiers on it, like, well, are they a comic fan? Do they like X-Men, right? Do they like this? But it's like any other media, right? Like, um, if you're into, you know, film noir or you're into silent movies, right? There's always good movies of that period or good uh, uh, stories to uh, to listen to. Like I, I, I listen to some of the old uh, radio show broadcasts, yeah, right? Do. Before TV, and some of them are great. I mean, they still hold up, right? It, it they can paint this amazing picture in your mind that they probably never thought someone would still be listening to right 80 years later, 90 years later. So th those are the two criteria that we're, you know, we're really rating these books on. Is it still enjoyable and would we recommend it? And I have to say right off the bat that uh, 
Sauron is one of those villains that, depending on who's writing him, right, it's like, eh, is he really a threat, right? Is he really that big of a deal, you know, to go up against, you know, the X-Men, right? I mean, the X-Men are a powerhouse. That team. they are. And I tell you, I think when Sauron is best written was either by Roy Thomas with Neil Adams art back in the... Uh, late 60s, early 70s. So that would be in X-Men 60s and right here by Claremont and Byrne because I think they really handle him and his powers and the dual personality in a really effective way. So uh, I I think they they truly make you think that, okay, uh, yeah, it's typical Jekyll Hyde. I mean, Sauron is basically a half-human pterodactyl, which is kind of a goofy which is absurd it really is a goofy looking visual okay but right but because (laughs) because of the writing here you're just like yeah whatever i mean i don't care it's a cool thing and you really have to think that the mutants have to be careful because as soon as he gets his hands on them like rogue he's just gonna sap their power and their energy and be even stronger and oh i guess we could use this on tim and brian because hey be quiet guys he has this hypnotism thing where his eyes glow red and they kind of have those little circles around them and they can, and he can hypnotize his victim if they look into his eyes. So it's it's a great power. Is this still enjoyable? Yes. It's enjoyable to me. However, you need to have the full story. You can't just like drop into the story. I'm looking at it from the Marvel masterworks paperback edition. So that means I get some of the backstory leading up to it. It's got great action. It's got great visual and great color. And I think the characterization is nice. So even though it's a half pterodactyl guy, you, you kind of can believe that it can happen. What'd you think? Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I was more familiar with Sauron from my early days. He, he kind of moved a little bit into being a Spider-Man villain. Did he? he popped up in a... Yeah, he popped up in a lot of Spider-Man issues. So I was I was curious when you said you wanted to cover X-Men 115, and I saw the cover, right, and it says Enter Sauron, and I'm like, oh boy. All right, what are we in for here? And as you said, it's still enjoyable because the way that, that Claremont uh, writes it and then burn his artistic talent, it, it's it's enjoyable, right? You kind of put that out of your mind of, of you know, it's Sauron, right? You know, how, how tough is he going to be to beat? And, you know, he... He works his his uh, Sauron juju on the X Men in a bunch of different panels, and you know goes toe to toe. Yeah, them. he does. I mean, there's so many great panels that they have in here, such as the after that you have the splash page, which is basically continue a, a direct continuation from 114. It's like seconds later, you turn the page and you got this this stunning two page spread of Wolverine going up to attack Sauron. Mm-hmm. The the detail that Burn puts in all of the faces just really shows so much angst and action and emotion that are on display. Yeah, it's just so amazing that goes in there. Uh, and then you turn a couple of pages later as we get into the fight where we've got Banshee and Cyclops teaming up to Kabang uh, Sauron with his with their powers was just so it's too bad it's such a small panel because this could be a full page and it would be really glorious. So I'm really yeah, and you, and you get typical burn action too. By the way, so if you thought like me initially, like oh Sauron, you know there's there's this battle that rages for multiple pages where he's you know twisted the X Men and you know you've got Wolverine on top of Cyclops and. At one point, Cyclops accidentally blasts Wolverine. <laughs> so right, there's, yeah. there's all these battles going on, uh, and just you know, typical Burn are really good at showing the action uh, between the characters. Like you said, that um, you know, there's some some standout pages uh, when Kazar right um, comes on the scene, and I think it's uh, like page ten. It's it's like towards the almost to the middle of the book, and he announces mm-hmm. himself, you know, right? Release my friend Carl Lycos, costume one, or face the wrath of Kazar, Lord of the Savage Land. Yeah. I, and I have to say, I've always been partial to the Savage Land. I like the idea of it, right? This place kind of out of time. Yeah, yeah. You know, so the setting was perfect. And, uh, you know, he uh, Burn even makes you know, Kazar look kind of cool, which I, I've always thought was kind of like a hybrid Conan Tarzan character. Yeah, definitely. And kind of like Sauron, right? Depending on who's writing him, 
he either can be kind of cool, right, because he's in his own kind of contained world, or he ends up kind of lame, you know, if, if someone doesn't like him. That's definitely the thing. Because of the, the containment of this land and the the sword and sorcery aspect of his character, he really needs a strong writer. Otherwise it can be very, very lame. And this story was just really great. So yeah, as far as actual pages, uh, not comic book pages, but actual pages, it's six pages of action. Yeah. <laughs> it's horrible. Before Kazar or Kazar finally shows up and says, stop it dudes that's my friend right you know and and it's an impressive you know three you know what two-thirds of a page scene there with him and his um saber tiger companion it's <laughs> flowing blonde locks rippling muscles so some really great work and then of course we go into the the backstory where we find out how carl got there and all the way back to X-Men 61 when he when the the original X-Men went back there. So so just to recap, so you said it was still enjoyable and yes, you would recommend it. Still enjoyable. I would recommend it. I definitely would recommend it. You've the whole storyline and uh, by the time you get done with it, you've got some and coming up, you've got some it, it just doesn't stop. Great characterization, great storytelling and we weren't too far away from our introduction to this podcast, right? With the uh, the Dark Phoenix. Only what, 10, 10 issues, 12 issues away a year later? Yeah. Oh, from from this one, uh, the the saga actually started, yeah, 129. So a year, I always, a year and a couple of months. I always think about, you know, were, were they already talking about it by then? At this point, I think not. They were just still, Phoenix was uh, still a side story. Next issue, I think, is where they kind of start introducing Jason Wingard as a flashback here and there, or maybe a couple issues later. And then it really kind of picks up in the 120s. Yeah, because I think we were talking about in our, our vast and in-depth coverage <laughs> that if you haven't listened to it yet, please go back and listen to it because we spent a lot of time on it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a lot of time. We said that they were planting seeds for this, you know, far back in terms of kind of gearing up for what was to come. So you really enjoy, you know, back to X-Men 115, I, I agree with you 100%. I, I still enjoyed it. Like we said, there was a lot of action in it. So if you like a lot of action in your X-Men books, there's a lot of action, a lot of fighting. The artwork is great, and I would definitely recommend it. You know, I give a lot of, I think I talked about this on the previous podcast, but I, I give a lot of my books to my nephews and nieces, and this is one for sure. I, I know my 11-year-old nephew would enjoy it. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's got the rock'em sock'em. But there's also this other deeper story at, at play, too. So, good. Yeah, it definitely is. And mm-hmm. Claremont and Byrne definitely knew when to break the story. <laughs> and, you know, the next issue is to save the savage land. It was a great breaking point, And you got enough of the story there to say, I want more. Right, right. Yeah, And that's how comics should leave you, right? Wanting that next issue. Absolutely. And you didn't touch on it, but the title page of the story says, Visions of Death. <laughs> <laughs> David, what did you think of the cover? Do you think that I mean it definitely was this basically the same as the splash cover? Did you would you think that if you saw that on the new the spinner rack or a newsstand, you'd be like, oh my gosh, I gotta ha- find out what's going on here? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think so because I, our cover is got Sauron right in his you know expanded wings up and out, and you see the X Men are fighting and then you've got storm laying on the ground for sure. You know, I would, I, if I looked at that, I'd be like, wait a minute, why is Wolverine slashing at Colossus? Right. And yeah, you know, that is kind of strange. I mean, and I'm flipping through the book here and I'm like, I don't see where that happened. No, it doesn't, but it, but it is, it is a catching cover. I mean, you've got yeah, it the red and green, right? So you've got the, you know, the three fourths of the, the covers taken up by Sauron, you know, peering at you as, as the reader, and the X Men yep. right doing battle in uh, enveloped by his wings and Storm laying there on the ground. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 not some, one of the one of the better X Men covers. I think we talked about some of that when we went through uh, yeah. the Phoenix Saga. You know, if I if I had been picking, I think the first page actually is better. I I like Sauron. You know, the image of Sauron holding storm by her hair like that to me right there is really visceral like what is going on why is he dragging her but it's good it's, yeah. you know it's above average it would have made me you know as a as a as a younger kid pick it up for sure yeah and 
Sauron. There's something that cool there. But yeah, great book. Uh, Inks by Terry Austin. Rick Parker was the letterer. Uh, Roger Stern was the editor. Shooter was the editor-in-chief. Francoise Mouly is the colorist. And of course, written by uh, Clerk Chris Claremont and John Byrne and illustrated by uh, John Byrne and inked by Austin. Fantastic stuff. So 41 years later, it still holds up. 41 years later, I still get excited about it and love to read it. Well, my book is a little newer. Not much, though. Yeah, FF Fantastic Four, number 284. This book, uh, just like John's, was a November cover date book. This was November of 1985. was on sale August 13th of 1985. Uh, Comics had gone up a little bit in between in the six years from the... uh, 35 cent cover of the X-Men issue that was now they were now a whopping 65 cents but I, I do have memories because I would have been six at this time so in a few short years I would be actually buying my own comics from the local comic shop you know debating right do I get this comic for a dollar or that one for a dollar I mean it was a real issue you know when you're 10 or 11 and you only get five bucks that's right you know, I wasn't, you know, and I had to factor in tax too. It was like, okay, do I buy two of these and I can get a few back issues? Cause back issues were all a quarter or 50 cents. But yeah, so uh, we're fantastic four, number 284. Uh, we've got Mr. John Byrne as the writer and penciler of this issue. So this is a hundred percent all burn in terms of the, the writing and the art. Uh, inker was Al Gordon. Uh, we had John Workman as the letterer. I always like to point out the letterer because there, I think a lot of that's been replaced digitally now. And uh, so I, I like to call it the letterer because it it was important to me as a kid. You you knew there were some, some comics, right? They were not lettered all that good. I'm not going to mm-hmm. call it specific issues, but... You know, when when you read a book, if the letterer did a good job, you could you could read it pretty quick. So John Workman did it, and we had Glennis Ween on colors for this issue. We've got a long synopsis, so I'm just going to tell you if you if you are looking at what this is a part of, just like John's issue, it drops you into. In this case, it's the end of the story. I think John, you said there were was one more in yours. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So mine is the end, and it covered Fantastic Four, 282, 283, and 284. So it was a three three issue story arc. And um, to give you the the high points here, we find our Fantastic Four. Now this is not the traditional Fantastic Four. The Thing has left the Fantastic Four and been replaced by She Hulk, who we who we know. Uh, is near and dear to John Byrne. So, of course, when the thing left, She-Hulk came in to replace him. And that's what we find on the cover of this issue. We see a, a big boot to the head of She-Hulk, which, uh, the you know, comparing it against the X-Men 115, there's no way you're not buying this issue. I mean, she's getting the stinky boot right to her face, and she looks like she's in agony. So definitely a, a cover that would make you say, what's going on here? Why is She-Hulk getting, getting the boot? Just, just as a side note, I was so excited when She-Hulk became a part of the Fantastic Four. I mean, I love the thing, but when they introduced the, a year earlier, a year and a half earlier, the She-Hulk coming coming as part of the Fantastic Four after um, Secret Wars, right. I was like, wow, this is super. This is going to be so cool because I really like the She-Hulk character. Right. Uh, Burn really took her and and turned her into a really viable character. So this was, so she's really exciting. And so yeah, this is really cool. Yeah. It, She-Hulk is a lot like Sauron in that it's all in the hands of the writer. If, if someone tries to write She-Hulk like a discount bin Hulk, it doesn't work. If they write her as, you know, a smart, intelligent, I mean, cause she is an attorney um, who just happens to have right. The Hulk ability. Then she's a great character. She's very compelling. Uh, so I agree with you a hundred percent and, and uh, you know, burn, of course, you know, this uh, having her in this book, you know, he does a good job of writing her. So speaking of secret wars, by the way, issue 282 is part of a much beloved secret wars two, which I know everyone just thinks that's the cat's meow. Right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> horrendous. In fact, that was one of my uh, first introductions to, uh, to comics because at Toys R Us, right. You could get, like a three pack oh. of comics for a buck in the bag. Was that the Whitman? Was that the Whitman bags? Some of them were, but a lot of them were the you know direct market returns, right? Because they couldn't they couldn't sell all this stuff. 
So then they uh, packaged them up and you could get them at Toys R Us, you know, for like a buck, you'd get three issues, which, you know, it's a good discount, right? Off of the almost $2 cover price for those three comics. But yeah, Secret Wars uh, 2 does make an appearance in this arc in issue 282, but it's very small. So thankfully, uh, in in Burns' wisdom, you know, the, the impact of Secret Wars 2 was very minimal uh, in, in this particular arc. So it was not like the book was hijacked uh, completely. Uh, the cover, like you said, you're like, what the heck is this? <laughs> and it's not just that she's getting tranced on by somebody, but, I mean, you look at it, and something else is going on, and she's covered with dirt. And I mean, to see yep. She-Hulk with somebody's boot on their head, yeah, right. Something weird is happening here. So, what happened? Well, yeah. so I'm I'm gonna you have to bear with me here because we are coming in at the end of an arc. So John had a nice introduction to kind of set the stage for 115. Um, I'm gonna set the stage here for 284, and it goes a little something like this. Uh, enslaved by the Psycho Man, the She-Hulk has been forced to toil in the mines of Navidia, deep below the Microverse. And that's a, a call out. So if you're not familiar, the Microverse, right, is the very tiny little universe. Uh, and and they're in the realm of sub- Subatomica. It's brilliant naming. When one of the other slaves kills one of the mind-dwelling creatures for food, everyone scrambles toward it to try and get some food. When She-Hulk tries to grab, get some as well, she is kicked aside by Dutta, the mine slave driver. When she begs him for food and water, Dutta obliges by forcing her to drink the muddy water runoff from the mine. When Dutta is called away for other concerns, She-Hulk is helped up by Perla, former queen of the realm. She recalls uh, She-Hulk's name from the Fantastic Four files. When Perla hears the FF's name, she uh, explained that they once helped free her kingdom from the tyranny of Dr. Doom years ago. Uh, She-Hulk learns that Perla took over the kingdom after her father died until one day they were attacked by the Psycho Man, who used his emotion-casting control box to take over the kingdom. Apparently immune to the effects of the control box, Perla fled into the once-abandoned mines to hide and has remained hidden there since Psycho Man reopened them and forced her people to uh, toil away in the metal mines. When Perla uh, tries to get She-Hulk to leave, she is too afraid to go thanks to the emotional conditioning done to her by the Psycho Man. Uh, The pair are caught, but Dutta, who uh, impales Perla with a spear, Dutta gloats over, yeah, uh, She-Hulk's inability to do anything about it. However, Perla manages to coax Jennifer out of her mental conditioning, and the She-Hulk lays out Dutta with a single punch. Mm Mm-hmm. Unable to remove the spear for fear Perla might bleed out, She-Hulk breaks off its breaks off its shaft and is about to leave when they are suddenly surrounded by guard. And uh, above the ground inside Psycho Man's lab, the other members of, of the Fantastic Four, because they are here in the microverse, are searching their records to try and find out what Psycho Man had done uh, with the She-Hulk, because the rest of the Fantastic Four don't, don't know where she is. Uh, jo- uh, Johnny suddenly informs the others that the Psycho Man managed to escape the cell they placed him in. Reed begins to blame himself for allowing their foe to leave, which, by the way, there's a, that's a, a tip-off that something is going on. Sue tells them that they should split up and find their foe. As Reed searches, his sense uh, of doubt begins to increase until the Psycho Man reveals himself and the fact that he's been using his control box on him the whole time. Suddenly, the box slips out of Psycho Man's hands by Sue, who reveals that she had been invisibly following her husband after deducing his doubts were caused by their foe. Sue then pins the Psycho Man with her powers and chastises him for using his device to rape her emotionally, which happened in the previous issue, and that she is going to punish him for what he has done. When Psycho Man asks if she is going to kill him, which is very unusual, right, to have even that come up in a Fantastic Four book. Yeah. Uh, which tells you how bad, if you have not read the, the previous issues, he does virtually rape her emotionally. Um, Sue tells him that she intends to pay him back in kind for what he has done. And that really brings us to the end of the issue uh, in terms of the synopsis. So, yeah, so the the uh, as we opened up with on the cover, um, She-Hulk's in a bad place. So she's she's under the control of the Psycho Man, which uh, I, I told John before we started recording that even me, as someone who's read a lot of Marvel comics, I was like, Psycho who? And my first thought was Psycho Pirate from DC, as someone who's a big DC fan, 
And yes, you're right. Psycho Man, if you're thinking Psycho Pirate like me, he is very similar to him. And he's not a new creation. So I, I had to jump on the old uh, Wikipedias. And it turns out that Psycho Man actually first appeared in FF Annual Number 4 in 1967. So he's a Stan and Jack creation. And he does have the ability, similar to Psycho Man, but not as wide-ranging, um, or similar to Psycho Pirate, but not as wide-ranging as Psycho Pirate. Um, he has a device that allows, it to, allows him to um, trigger fear, doubt, and hate at uh, varying degrees of intensity. So that is how, when we open the book, we find She-Hulk is actually uh, a prisoner and is being forced to do manual labor uh, while her uh, the rest of her teammates are looking for her. And just flipping through the book, I there are some amazing pages in this issue that yeah. prob- probably don't get enough credit because it's, like I said, it's just a three-issue arc. Um, this one has a little more prominence because this is at the end of the issue, uh, and, and spoiler alert for a 35-year-old book, uh, because of what Psycho Man did to the Invisible Woman, uh, she, this is when she drops Invisible Girl. She, she makes the proclamation that from here on forward, she's going to be called the Invisible Woman. Uh, yeah. But there- that was quite an interesting change for her mm-hmm. as well uh, for... I mean, of course, this was 1985, so I was um, out and about in the military. I was not getting comics as easy as poss- as I could, uh, but I was still sticking with like maybe three or four titles when I could. And I was just like, wow, this is great. Uh, yeah, it was a big... It, was this one of the comics you were getting, the Fantastic Four at the time? It was. I kept Fantastic Four, X-Men, I think Teen Titans, New Teen Titans, and okay. I can't remember the others, but a couple of others here and there. So, but at least as the core, fantastic because it was Byrne. I mean, I love John Byrne's work, and X Men. I was just stuck with because I like them <laughs> the character so much. I mean, right. I I really am not a fan of Paul Smith, and I wasn't then, and I'm a little bit easier on him now. But I really didn't like Paul Smith, but it was X Men, so I stuck with it. But yeah. Um, Fantastic Four definitely was one of the ones that I really still uh, made an effort to keep. Uh, I mean, I had limited space, so um, I'd buy a bunch of books, and after a while, I'd mail them home to my mom and say, "Hey, put these in a box in my box or whatever." So, right, uh, yeah, yeah. It, Fantastic Four always struck a chord with me as someone who had um, two two uh, uh, sisters and then a brother. So I come from a family of four. And so I liked the family dynamic and fantastic, you know, this, this family unit fighting together. Absolutely. And Byrne really did a good job at working Jennifer into that. He did with, I mean, of course, um, either the thing or Jennifer are not related to the other three in any way, but they are family of choice. And it just shows how important family of choice can be. Yeah. And, and the, some of the call outs I want to make. So we, we talked about the cover, right. Being, you know, one that would make you want to pull it up, you know, pick it up off the shelf because you got, um, she Hulk getting the boot, but the first page is just great. You know, where she, you can see the anguish she's, she's, you don't know what she's doing other than she's trying to hold up some, some timber, uh, with one arm and she's bracing herself with the other. And there's all this water running down on her, and Byrne does a great job of showing, you know, the water that her body is all wet and her face is showing this anguish as she's trying to hold something up. You don't know what it is, but you definitely know this is not easy for her. Yeah, you do. And he and you can if you even look at the muscles, you can see how tense they are. So right. his detail, his attention to detail on this is really, really and it's that minor thing that most people like when I, so I was what, 20, 21 when this came out and you as a, what, how did you say you were 10 when this came out? Six. Six? <laughs> oh, yes. okay. I mean, you wouldn't have noticed those, those minor no. details, but those little things really are what made these books a step above another book, which would have been good. But this just made those subtle differences that you're like, wow, this is this is the stuff that I really want to keep coming back for. Yeah. And, and you know, mid 80s, right? Fantastic Four is not probably really high on like a lot of collectors lists. I personally have continued to collect Fantastic Four. You know, that's one of my goals, right, is to have a complete run mm. of Fantastic Four. 
you know, obviously you can imagine the issues that are going to be really expensive. (laughs) It's like a, it's like Spider-Man, right? People saying they want to collect all of Spider-Man. It's like, okay, well you can do really good until you get down to about the first 50. And then you're going to start having to save your pennies to, to get those issues. But this is a book in 1985, right? When you wouldn't think that there would be this great art and it, it really has it. So we talked about that first page. Then when you flip the page, there's a two page spread in this book. Um, as well. So we had a two-page spread in uh, mm-hmm. X-Men 115, and here we were presented with a two-page spread right away again in Fantastic Four. And it's great because you see now Jennifer has gone from filling the whole page to <laughs> very small part of the page, and she's holding up this massive machine that's filled with metal and rock and everything else, and everyone around it is very small. So you get this great sense of scale that she is holding two, you know, a huge timber so that this machine can cross this this uh, this part of uh, uh, the mine that they're in, and it just puts into that perspective of oh my gosh, right? She is incredibly strong. She's holding up this giant uh, vehicle. Yeah, and you know, another of the other aspects about this two page spread that is really amazing is. It's the class of artists that he's in with George Perez, Jack yes. Kirby, and Neil Adams, who put so much other detail in. They just didn't whitewash and have blank space or just a solid color. Right. Kind of, you know, there's a lot of detail in, in these things. Like a ton. Why did you have to put this weird flying <laughs> alien fish thing there? I mean, right. I mean, that wasn't necessary, but it just shows it. What it is is the subtle aspect of showing you this is not where we think we are, and uh, it just all of these little details are just really amazing. Um, I mean, they call it Kirby Crackle and Perez Rubble, so we've got those 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 types of details in this this massive toothpaste spread that really just make it all the better. Yeah, and it, it as John said, you know, it's it's a fully detailed two page spread. There's no just chunks of color to indicate, right, that this is a wall or this is water. Everything is detailed from the machine to the people to the stuff that's right in front of us as the the reader to the background where we see that it's some kind of, um, you know, a stone structure in the back. So they're they're down somewhere. You you get the feeling that they're they're down somewhere in something and. This easily could have been, you know, for lack of a better term, pencil whip, where you see with some spreads where they have, you know, big chunks of color and stuff's not detailed. This right away you're hit with this page and you go, man, that's that's a lot <laughs> to just show, you know, She-Hulk holding up this this vehicle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, going through, like we, uh, I said in the synopsis, you know, she has been put into this manual labor, right, because of the psycho man's control. But there's page after page of just great detail in Jennifer's face, her facial features, her hair. I think we talked about that in the uh, Phoenix Saga, you know, about the detail in the hair. And and, uh, John does a great job uh, of, you know, making her hair look nice, that it looks natural um, as she's being beaten by this guy. uh, As John said, you know, you've got mud all over, uh, you know, her costume and her her body, but really great. And, you get to page uh, seven or eight in the comic here when you finally see Psycho Man, and right away it's obvious it's a Kirby design. That's what um, jumped out to me right away reading this book was you know you've got all this great art that looks very modern and contemporary, and then here you have the villain come on the scene, and it's like he jumped straight out of you know yeah. a Kirby book yeah and I love that he kept that out of respect or convenience or whatever it was I, I, I like that he kept that because I mean um, yeah like we talked about Sauron I mean it's a totally ridiculous design but hey it's Kirby design and it's what it's just what makes comics fun to me is this kind of like out, outrageous cool stuff yeah, and I, I do think that he was paying homage, right, in some way to Kirby. He could have updated, you know, uh, Psycho Man to be more current, you know, in that mm-hmm. time, right, in 1985, that could have made him look different, but he didn't. And I think that was a conscious choice that Byrne yeah. made. Yeah, definitely. And very cool. 
Um, you know, there's a couple other panels I'll just call out here. So when when uh, Perla uh, gets uh, speared as she's as she's trying to break Jennifer out of the cycle man's control, um, I really like the emotional and, and physical pain that uh, Burn draws into her face. And then when uh, She-Hulk breaks the control and then she socks, right, their tormentor, it's just great. I mean, she just pops him, knocks him out, knocks his helmet clean off his head. Mm-hmm. And you know that he's down for the count. And then uh, you see She-Hulk, right, is back to herself and she scoops uh, Perla up and yeah. is taking her back. Just a comment about that. Where um, Dada or Duda. Uh, <laughs> Such actually, a bad name. <laughs> I know. <laughs> where he like stabs her with a spear man that is so like wow it's that image there where you know he he actually just spears her and then lifts her up oh yeah brutal four feet off off the ground it's just like wow how did that hurt that was so excruciating and then (laughs) when she hulk finally does come out i really love that center panel it's just like tap tap (laughs) Right. Pow! It's yeah. just like, wow. Yeah. And she just, great, great image. It, it really is in great detail, you know, uh, in her musculature, right? So that's important with a character like She-Hulk, and she just nails this guy. Yeah. Sends him flying. I just love the humor of the, like, tap, tap, tap on the back of the shoulder. I mean, she could have just, like, yeah, pounced him head with a rock or something. But no, she's like, I want you to know who's going to just now, right now, lay you out. <laughs> that was awesome. Right. Just great stuff. Uh, yeah, this, uh, I, I do have to, just for, for you know, uh, f- fun, I love the, the page right after that, the panel up in the top right where She-Hulk has picked uh, Perla up because, you know, she she's, in, you know, hurt badly. Um, as John mm-hmm. said, you know, he, uh, Duda or Dutta, you know, threw the spear right into where her, her arm joins into her shoulder and She-Hulk picks her up and she's got this great expression on her face and you see Perla there. To me, it looks like she's saying like, that's the bad man over there that hurt me, right? And She-Hulk's like, you know, show me where. (laughs) It's just this great look of like, you know, a whooping's coming. We don't see that because then we switch to Reed, Sue, and Johnny in the the lab there uh, trying to find them. So I was like, oh man, we we missed some serious butt whooping here. But yeah, but then we're treated right to, right, you get the odd dialogue from Reed, which is an indicator that Psycho Man is still there and Mm -hmm. he's manipulating him. We get, again, great uh, burn homaging uh, Kirby, right, in the way that he's drawn the Psycho Man and uh, Invisible Woman. Uh, rescues them from his control. Um, I have to say, you know, we we didn't the hairstyles in the X Men book didn't really stand out to me, but they definitely do here because Sue has like the eighties chick mullet, you know, girl mullet, whatever you want to call it, horrendous. And then yeah. Johnny too has this weird side cut thing going on. Yeah, yeah. When those came in, it was it was definitely a big change for the Fantastic Four. Uh, when Sue lost her flowing hair to this, to this, and Johnny decided to go to that that high and tight with the long top, so <laughs> it was a little bit strange. Okay, you know, what, you know, Burn was always kind of yeah. We talked about the fashion and the, which is funny because Reed being Reed, right? Like he doesn't care. He's all he always looks the same. Yeah, he does. He's the only one in the group, right, that has the same haircut as he's always had. Yeah, uh, but Johnny and Sue are are updated. I gotta say that I just kind of talking about you know six silver age character designs and Kirby design. I mean, here's this dude with this giant box, fear, doubt, and hate. Let me just press the button. <laughs> Boom. Right. Oh. It, yeah, oh. it is kind of in your face, right? Yeah. You just gotta, you just gotta, you just gotta love it and accept it, right? Right, right. Yeah, that he just has this giant box with these very clear, clear labeling, mm-hmm. feared out and hate. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I guess it's not that much different than Psycho Pirate's mask, right? His mask mm-hmm. yeah. you know, gives some indication of what he's trying to manipulate. But yeah, he, it literally is like a cereal box that says fear, doubt, and hate. You know, it's like pick pick which emotion you're trying to manipulate. Um, he really moves into some serious stuff here with once Sue has yes subdued him. And he's like, are you going to kill me? And I mean, for a second, you think she actually might. 
<laughs> it it does, you know, it does, and and like I said, uh, you know, in the synopsis, th- there's some th- there's some out of character stuff in this book, but when you go back and look at the previous two issues, you know, and what Psycho Man did to her, I think Byrne did the right thing by you know, kind of maturing up the book a little bit here, mm-hmm. where he can't just get away after what he did. He's got to pay some price, and we're not. You know, it's kind of like a death off panel, so to speak, you know, like where, you know, someone gets shot, you know, and, and you don't see who it is, but you know that something bad happened. Well, we know something happened because mm-hmm. I've looked at these last few pages over and over again, and it's not mentioned. It's just like, uh, okay, that's <laughs> kind of scary. It is. And we have She-Hulk, you know, because once She-Hulk and Perla meet up with Johnny, she, uh, She-Hulk there's a text bubble that says that was horrible. It sounded like somebody having their soul ripped out. And this is right after, um, as, as John had said, you know, the psycho man asks Sue if, if she's going to kill him. So she has definitely turned the box on him. Yeah. Cause she had it in her mm-hmm. hand. So kind of like when Jean turned the stakes on mastermind in dark Phoenix, Saga, right. where she gave him all the power that he wanted and drove him nuts. I want to yeah, imagine that. <laughs> And they won't let, and nobody went back in there. So Sue was probably like, "Yeah, I know you don't need to go in there right now." <laughs> That's what she tells you. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. I know. And and she, yeah. And I think Byrne does it purposely as a call out. So there's the panel when She Hulk wants to rush in and find out what's going on. Right? Why is there this horrendous scream of someone in agony? Right? Sue stops her, and then the bottom panel is very simple. It's just Sue's upper portion of her body, you know, like, you know, shoulders up and her face with a very serious look that says the psycho man is no longer any threat to us. He won't bother anyone in the last box, right? Ever again. And the background is just black and red. That's it. And I, th- I think Byrne did that purposefully so that we would focus in on her face and the seriousness of what she was saying what Sue was saying. And you know, that totally lends into the traditional way of true horror is when you don't actually mm-hmm. see what happened. For She-Hulk to say, that sounded like somebody was having their soul ripped out. And then Sue's like, yeah, no, you don't need to go in there. And then to say he won't bother us ever again, you're like, wow. Right. <laughs> what was that about? So definitely not our traditional Sue. No, and she's been put through the ringer in these last couple issues. And... Mm-hmm. You know, the the book closes with Sue having this monologue because Reed and Sue have this moment, um, you know, where Reed knows that something's wrong. And the book closes with the psycho man did more than twist my emotions. He forced me to look into the deepest corners of my soul, forced me to confront who I am, what I have become. When we rocketed into the cosmic ray belt, uh, when we gained our superpowers, we lost some innocence, a childlike or naivete. For a long time, I've tried to go on as if we were still the same people we used to be, as if I was still the same. But I'm not. Not after all that's happened to us. Not after uh, what the psycho man did to me. There is no invisible girl anymore, Reed. She died when the psycho man twisted her soul. From now on, I am the invisible woman. I mean, if that isn't a monologue to end a book, I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. To layer underneath this was remember that not long before this in their timeline anyway um, she was possessed by the hate monger yep. and uh, that twisted her around a lot too to have her psyche invaded that way so yeah she's gone through a lot here and this is a big big change it really is and so to, to go back to our two questions again so is it, is it still enjoyable yes but is it meaningful yeah it's it, it, it's a good story to read and it's not a typical, for me, it's not a typical beat down the bad guys type of thing. There's a lot of other layers of things in there to kind of go through. So yeah, uh, I think it's still enjoyable or worthwhile. You? I, I would agree. You know, from an enjoyability perspective of the art, um, the writing, we talked about the inking being important and the lettering. This book reads perfect. It holds up. It does. You've got great action. You've got great coloring. The drawing by Byrne doesn't look dated other than the hairstyles, which we pointed out right on Sue and Johnny. Outside of that, everything else is great. I mean, it really is top notch. Yeah, I agree with you. And I would recommend it to someone that likes Fantastic Four. If you like Fantastic Four and you haven't read this kind of lost, the lost decades, as it were, of Fantastic Four, kind of that 80s, 90s, um, I would definitely recommend it. This this three-story arc is very important for Sue. 
as we talked about at the end with her saying that she's no longer the invisible girl, right? She's the invisible woman. So if you like the Fantastic Four, you, you owe it to yourself to read this one to, to learn how did she get to that point and why does she make that decision? This was really a significant change from turning Sue from the always needing to be rescued and getting coffee and tea or whatever and kind of always being left on the side burner to really coming into her her power and her own and really pushing her to like hey i'm an equal member as everyone else i mean and burn had been working on that in different stages like beginning right. with the hate monger thing with some of the other stuff with franklin and all of that but um this was really like her assessing all of this stuff and saying it's time to grow up and it was really a good really good phase oh yeah hate monger was just in 280 270 280 281 so that was just uh-huh. it was right before this right before this in a couple of months for us so it's really part of a bigger bigger arc for her and uh yeah she really came into her power at that point which is really cool it's interesting. I, I kind of say, like, with almost all characters, you go through phases, right, with the character of your understanding of them. And I think the Fantastic Four is the same way. You know, you kind of go into it, you know, when you're young, thinking that the Human Torch and the Thing are the, are the coolest members, right? Because obviously you've got a guy that can fly around, he's on fire. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the Thing, right, who can just pummel anybody. You can fight the Hulk to a standstill. And I think as your reading gets more in-depth on that Fantastic Four, you find out that really the Thing, yeah, he's got the stamina and he can go the distance with anybody. And, and Johnny's cool because he's the hothead and, you know, he can, you know, use his fire powers to overcome a lot of foes. And Reed's got his brain, right, and his stretching ability. But Sue is actually the glue that holds the entire crew together. And she's also the most powerful out of the whole family. Her powers are incredibly powerful. And and we'll see as as the years go on here, you know, they really explore Sue's abilities and Mm -hmm. and just how strong she is. And when, uh, you know, not to give any spoilers, I'm trying to remember when she turns bad, she gets corrupted. And I'm drawing a blank for some reason right now. Oh, It'll come to me later. I know. As soon as we probably end the podcast, right, it'll come to me. Um, when she goes off off the rails, the whole team falls apart without her. So you know, if you haven't read a lot of Fantastic Four, I'd encourage you to read that, the books because they, there are some definitely uh, some high points in it. Mm-hmm. This one being one in terms of Sue's kind of awakening. And I chose this book completely by accident, you know, under the umbrella of the you know November, right, Thanksgiving uh, reason. Totally forgetting that this was an important book for sue it really was a very good character development character moving forward stuff and they really do a lot of the character development in the couple of issues prior 282 mm-hmm. like you mentioned earlier i'm just kind of flipping through it and there's really a lot because it's the aftermath from hate monger yep. taking over her body and her psyche and so actually this is kind of the end of that whole arc in a way as well so there's just john Byrne really tied a lot of different threads in there. there's a lot of cool stuff yeah it's sue throwing down the gauntlet right saying i'm i'm not a girl anymore mm-hmm. and I, I think the same you know gene gray went on kind of a similar journey right of dropping the marvel girl monica you know which i think is a good thing for these characters to mature up right and and they've been put in such dire situations and like you said with the previous arc with the hate monger i mean can you imagine having someone take over your body right and and how that would mess you up uh you know and and so it makes total sense that at the conclusion of this arc after being then then um tortured by psycho man she would say that's it i'm done Mm -hmm. i'm not a visible girl anymore i'm a visible woman and i'm gonna whoop your butt because i'm sick and tired you know of having this stuff happen to me i'm done yeah so great stuff man we just some really good stories for us and I'm kind of looking over at Tim and Brian, and they're just kind of um, wiggling around a little too much there. I, I threw some uh, some Snickers bars over there, so they're good for a bit. Yeah, I think so. But I think we're uh, that. I think we may have tripped a silent alarm, Ooh. and so at this point, we, we may want to wrap it up and get maybe, out of here before the cops. Yeah, show maybe up. we should do that. Is there any way we could maybe borrow some of that little mind control thing? We'll just kind of wipe their memory so they don't know that we did this. <laughs> Yeah, let me, uh, let me, let me, see. oh no, I'm fresh out. Oh, uh, they, they won't be hard to appease. We'll just get them some John Byrne artwork or comics and we'll be fine. That's right. That's right. We can, we can, we can buy their silence. We can buy their silence. <laughs>
David, this was really fun. Great to go over these two books. And I hope that uh, other people will check them out and check out the rest of the stories that go with them because they're really some amazing stuff. Well, thank you for taking this November uh, journey as we broke into the studio and and hogtied and gagged Tim and Brian uh, to bring you a couple of November books or books that were cover dated in November that would have been on the shelves uh, at the time when you were escaping your family to go maybe have some comic goodness. So as, uh, as they would say... Uh, you can send them feedback on this episode. You can you can tell them that you want those those uh, uh, nasty interns to come back at some point. Uh, you can send them some uh, feedback at gotta get burned at gmail.com. And of course, Third Degree Burn is proud to be part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. And they do have a Facebook group called Third Degree Burn. That's three RD degree burn. All of the episodes are up there, artwork and some some discussions. Check them out on Facebook for those who are on Facebook as well. Yeah. Well, happy Thanksgiving, John. I hope you have a great one with your family. Thanks. You too, David. And let's go out with Starship with We Built the City, which was the number one song weeks of November 16th and the 23rd in 1985. Your fight. Too many 